Welcome to the Good Reading Magazine podcast. Good Reading Magazine is a monthly publication dedicated to books and reading and aims to help readers discover their next favourite book. You can find out more about the books discussed on today's podcast at goodreadingmagazine.com.au. Hello and welcome to the Good Reading Magazine podcast. My name's Greg Dobbs. Today I'm talking to Rosalie Hamm about her new book, The Dressmaker's Secret. You'll be familiar with Rosalie's previous work, The Dressmaker, which is an international bestseller and a great book that's been turned into a movie. Rosalie Hamm, welcome to the Good Reading Magazine podcast. Good morning, Greg. Thank you for having me here. How long have you been keeping Tilly Dunnage's secret? Did you always intend for there to be a sequel to The Dressmaker? Or was it just another fortuitous accident, as you called, as you labelled the dressmaker? Uh, I would have to say it was a combination of all of that. But what prompted it hugely in the end and made me really sit down and tackle it was the fact that I'd been actually talking about it for 20 years because people, um, when I did library talks or school talks, they would say, where is Tilly now? And I, I understood that they had ideas where she was, they knew she, where she was, they'd already imagined the ending. And so I didn't want to kind of shatter that for a long time. But I knew where she was and I knew what she was doing, but I had to grapple with the idea of what would she do next? How do you write a, a sequel to a book that um, has had a bit of an impact? People were emotionally touched by that book and you, you can't repeat that in a, in a sequel. So I was fearful, yet there was a nagging need to you know, finish off what Tilly had started and put it to rest. Because when she fled Dungatar, she basically fled another past. She created another past. So she needed to go back and confront that. And I'd been keeping notes for 20 years and tinkering. And then one day I just sat down and started writing it. And here it is. The Dressmaker's Secret uh, moves away from the action of the provincial Victorian town, Dungatar, and dare I say to only a slightly less provincial 1950s Melbourne. But there seems to be a kind of fleshing out of Tilly's character in The Dressmaker's Secret and a kind of renewed intensity to Tilly as a character, maybe even a humanisation of her. Does that character development have a source somewhere in your mind? Um, do you know, it was the first book, The Dressmaker, was I wrote it as part of a creative writing course. And I and so the, the sequel to The Dressmaker is my fifth novel. So I've, I've actually kind of got better, I like to think anyway, as a novelist. Um, and I kind of came to understand that Tilly wasn't as fleshed out and wasn't quite as developed as she could have been. I like her interior emotional psychological development needed to be fleshed out, as you so rightly said, and it needed to be concluded and we needed to know a little, little bit more about her. That was my personal want. That was what I really wanted to do. As a writer, I wanted to improve my craft like that. But also married with that was the whole idea of, of costume as a metaphor, as a weapon, as a lie, um, as freedom, and what is the difference between costume and couture and all those sorts of things. Because the, the people in Dungatar were basically dressed in costumes. They were dressed in clothes that were a lie. And I wanted to extend that idea and see what would happen to Tilly 
when confronted with doing the same thing over and over and over again. So that was the kind of idea behind resurrecting Tilly and making her whole and accomplished, etc. And that was one of the really funny aspects too, that uh, the residents of Dungata were still wearing the costumes from the famous production of Macbeth uh, in their daily lives. Yes. Highly impractical. <laughs> yes. But uh, enormously funny. Uh, and that actually brings me to that supporting cast of characters, which uh, in this book are, are even more luminous than they were before. Uh, did you want to draw their failings more starkly, make them more likeable or unlikable, as the case may be? Absolutely. And um, it's also got to do with enthusiasm. I found them delightful to go back to those people and I really enjoyed their awfulness. I just... You know, they're, they're so appalling um, and you, you can't get people that appalling, but if you put them in fiction, it just makes it fun. So if you if you have affirmation from the first book that the characters are awful, yet people still like them, then you know that that trick has worked. And so I just wanted to go back and see if I could do it again. And then I just got a little bit carried away with them all and I, I was, I love them all. I'm very fond of them. I especially liked, I think, Marigold and Bula and how you describe them and what happens to them eventually, which we won't give away. No, no. The Dressmaker's Secret also reveals this whole new level of sophistication in your descriptions of design and haute couture. And it feels more like now you have a relationship with that art. Has that sense developed for you over time or was it always present for you? No, it's developed, and it developed again with the. I did a lot of um, talking events with Sue Maslin, the girl who produced the, the film of the dressmaker, because the costumes went on tour, and we followed them around. And I discovered that there's um, a whole subculture of women and men who sew, and they're passionate about it. I, mean, I knew they were there, but I didn't realise to the extent that they were there, and just their knowledge their wisdom, wisdom, their understanding, their appreciation and their eye for looking at fashion kind of rubbed off on me. And I found myself um, harking back to my childhood when, my, when I was with my mum and she was making dresses for the people of Gerildry and kind of extending that by looking at um, costume exhibitions and hearing people talk and taking note of fashions in film and what people wore and all those sorts of things came to the fore and of course then there was another thing that amused me and terrified me and made me very angry was the whole scrutiny of poor old Julia Gillard and everything she wore and I came to understand that everybody um, in a public place if you're a woman it's got more to do with how you look rather than what you do. Um, and so there's some sort of distance between what is true and how people see you. So that, they were all the things that I wanted to kind of incorporate into gorgeous, luscious, beautiful fashions that none of us can ever possibly afford to wear, but you can vicariously enjoy them by just writing about them or reading about them or looking at them. Sometimes your writing actually seems to elevate fashion to almost like the level of sculpture. Is, is that how you sometimes see it? Yes, indeed. And, and, and in research, it's the way, like I read books on Dior and I read books on Madame Viennet and I read um, 
on Tony Mastiewicki, I think that's how you say it. He's a contemporary Australian designer. And just the way they approach the garments and the foundation of it and how they build on that and the idea and the concept and the silhouette and how the fabric moves. And it's actually quite a clever, um, complex craft that's deceptively simple. And you don't even know that your eye's being tricked when you look at a gown, but you're kind of being manipulated as an observer to see someone in a, in a certain way. And um, I, I remember going to Bendigo and seeing costume exhibition and there was an x-ray of what was beneath a gown to make it work, to hold it in place. And it was very complex and complicated. And I just grew to admire it enormously. I feel like sometimes the dressmaker is this sort of very special, unique window into a, a kind of philosophy of couture. Uh, and, and even in the book, there's sort of a, an internal debate on what clothing says about the wearer. Is that something you are really keen to explore? Absolutely. That, there's a, a whole philosophical side of it that is married to Tilly's emotional development, her progress, her coming to terms with, what am I doing with my art? Is it, Why am I just dressing these people and exacerbating their worst aspects and turning them into monsters so they can use my, my talents to their end? What can I do with what I've got that will um, have a better effect on society and herself? And so there's an argument in there and it's loosely based around an actress, a character who's an actress, and she's Miss Nita Orland. Uh, she needs a new someone to make her costumes. Uh, and she poses the question to Tilly that in order for you to make my character true, um, to make my character speak the truth, you need to trawl inside yourself as the costumier to find what it is inside you uh, that marries with the character. You need to find the character in you so that you can express that on me. And it sounds complicated and I, I worked hard to try and make it um, kind of work, but, but in the heart of that lies finding the truth within yourself. Um, but at the same time, um, you can use that truth to be authentic, to make something else true, or you can still use costume to present, for example, at a court or a police station or in front of a judge. You can wear something that you want the judge to see, to perceive you as. So there's all sorts of little things in there that I was kind of having a go at to, to really um, kind of make more vibrant what clothing, how you can use it. It's almost like you uh, treat clothing as a kind of a mask and it's a chance to be someone else or, or even to be yourself. Absolutely. Either of those things, yes. And uh, and you can use it to meld in and not be seen uh, as a uniform to be accepted or you can you can use it to give an impression or to get into a, a room. Um, and I'm saying all of this with deep irony because... Most of my day is spent in um, hard yakka bib and brace because they've got enough pockets to carry everything I require. <laughs> I can frock up. I've been known to, but uh, it's just in the back of my mind. I'm thinking about myself and the author, and there's a kind of a lie in there too. I don't recall any descriptions throughout the book of bib and brace. No. 
I'm also curious about uh, the description of your previous novel, The Dressmaker, as being gothic. Um, how do you feel about that label? How do you respond to that? I thought that was good. Um, that was something that was um, introduced by Gail McCallum, who was my editor at Duffy in Snellgrove when that book came out. And it had to do with the landscape and the fact that that isolation and the great stretch of vastness was a kind of a wall and a barrier that kept those people in their little isolated culture. Um, and also it was harsh. Um, it was rural. It was hot. It was all of those sorts of things. And the, you know, the town was old and decrepit and dilapidated and all those kind of things influenced the language of the people and the kind of people that were there and what they did, how they acted, what they said, and because they lived in fear and lies. So I thought that the landscape um, actually enhanced the contents of the book and really turned it into something slightly grotesque, but, but also satirical. Um, I actually kind of made more connections with things like Commedia dell'arte or Mozart opera and the way uh, people um, express themselves in this, sort of, as you say, very grotesque way um, and the way people actually um, dress up as certain characters. I think there's a section in the book where uh, a judge dresses up as Dorothea McKellar and uh, Elmer, who I think is the bartender at the Hippocampus Club, uh, is dressed up as Emily Dickinson. So this whole sense of these people um, playing out these characters almost on a stage. And there's also these Macbeth costumes. And this curious, I don't know whether I'm wrong here, this curious character of the stockman, which is the, the dummy, who just always seems to be there silently observing the action. Were you conscious of imbuing that character into this dummy? No, but I'm really pleased you said so. <laughs> um, and it opens up a whole different topic of, for conversation about lies and how you are seen. And um, it's quite a fascinating thing. But, yes, the people are... You're quite right. They're sort of leeringly grotesque in one way, but I've, I haven't made them those particular people that you talk about from the Hippocampus Club. I've made, made them fond, but it's like when you get into your own community and your own small little enclave of friends and family, you accept their idiosyncrasies and if they look odd you don't notice that they look odd because they just look like themselves. So there's the, the kind of thing where you can, I write what they look like and how they are and to keep it in prose that doesn't dramatise that, that just describes it and makes it, well, this is the way it is. And there's something, there's an irony in doing that that normalises the, the grotesque and makes it more palatable or acceptable. Um, and I, I just... That all came, that hippocampus club came from a bar I staggered into once lost in Brooklyn in New York. And I just found a whole lot of very, very odd, very friendly, very lovely people. And the barman said to us, um, don't go out, don't leave New York. And he, and he said, they're all weird out there, stay in New York. And there, there were certain, they were bar flies and they were weird people. And we, we were a bit lost. Um, and they walked us across the street and gave us the right coins and put us on the local bus to get us to where we wanted to go and wave goodbye. And I just have an image of turning around and looking at all these people. They were like stalactites. They were just kind of stand, that had 
lost their cave and they were standing at the bus stop waving to us. And it's just things like that that you remember um, that stick in your mind. So and they all look quite normal to each other. They didn't think they were unusual whatsoever. Um, and so it was that that I, those sorts of things that I draw on. In fact, uh, this idea of acceptance is kind of one of the more serious issues in the book. There's, there's a couple of other ones that are uh, relating to women. Also, you've covered the one about Julia Gillard and the criticism of way pe- the way women look rather than what they say or do. But there's another one that uh, interested me and which is quite topical and buried in the text somewhere is this idea that, um, that there's an undervaluation of women's contribution to gross domestic product. I found that quite interesting. Why did you want to raise that? And why also this, this scene full of these uh, grotesque characters, some of them are buffoons, some of them are absolutely despicable. Why choose that scene, that stage to express these kinds of ideas? Um, so that was taking place at the Hippocampus Club, that conversation, and I believe the Razettes were performing. Is that true? Yeah. Uh, they, they're balancing cream buns on their feet, I think. Yes, yeah, yeah. Um, that that happens to be, um, you've got to be very cautious here because the Razettes were a perform, performing group of myself and my two girlfriends. Oh, so there's some truth <laughs> in, in that whole thing. <laughs> wildly, wildly unsuccessful. And we had a bit of a cult following between our friends and family. But I, but the point of the conversation between Nita and Tilly, it was, it was tied to Nita's divorce. Um, it was tied to the way women were treated and to a certain extent still are treated. Um, the, the fact that things have changed enormously since 1953 which is when the novel set, but at the same time, they haven't really changed all that much. And, the, and, and women are still disadvantaged to a huge extent, as we have just seen in the pandemic, when um, most of the jobs that were discarded um, during that time were actually jobs for women. And you, you hear women talk about how that is going to affect the economy. And if you just made childcare free, how much more we could contribute. And you still get those arguments, they're still going on. So that conversation, um, it was absolutely perfect for Nita and her situation, but it was it also applies to now. So I just slotted that in as a little bit of food for thought. I just want to finish with uh, this idea where you seem to have grasped the art of the insult. You take it to a whole new level. They're so fabulous. I think even Paul Keating might cringe. A couple of examples for you. Um, you look like a gout-ravaged toe. And another one, uh, she, I think there's a reference to a lady standing on a, a little a step and she, you describe her as uh, appearing as an oyster wrapped in bacon. Do you have a catalogue of these insults in your mind somewhere? No, but they come from, um, I don't have a catalogue, but I'm building one now that you mention it. Um, it just comes from imagining what they look like because they're all very alive to me in my head as I'm writing. That's why I write in such a, a visual way. Um, and so you just look at them and you just keep making up insults until you get one that's completely apt. But I love a good insult. I'm, I'm like where I grew up, um, in, it was a small town and football, there was football every Saturday. And honestly, some of the insults um, that were flung at the opposing teams by, 
by the locals, they were hilarious and they were accurate and they could be accurate to the point of devastatingly true. Um, and you could expose people and their secrets by barracking obscenely at the football over. So, so it, it all just comes from that kind of thing. Um, and I possibly am a little bit odd or maybe not odd in that if someone upsets you or slights you or hurts your feelings, you can, you can spend days stewing about it and thinking about all sorts of horrible things to do to them. And I know that I'm not alone in this. There are other people out there. But I'd like to say at this point that ultimately I do let things go um, and I just put them into a book and use them. And then therapy has done its wonderful job. Well, I think you've developed a, a great Australian tradition, really. I think you've really advanced that. It's one of the things that makes this book, The Dressmaker Secret, so funny on every single page, but it's also, it doesn't lack poignancy either. It's, it's actually quite moving at the same time. Thank you. Thank you for that. And I, and I do, I read a, a column in a magazine over the weekend and it was talking about that very topic, that great Australian tradition of swinging, slinging insults and coming up with witty funny lovely ways to describe things and people and our devastatingly horrid black humour sometimes. Like sometimes the jokes come out a little bit too soon after the tragedy, but it's just kind of the way we are. And I seem to have, um, like I'm not too different to most other Australians, I don't think. Uh, there's that very strong sense of irony in the Australian sense of humour and it comes through very strongly in your book. I guess that was in a sense automatic for you. It is, and I, I attribute that to being Australian and being born and raised in a small country town. And and uh, as I've said in the past, it's that thing about um, alleviating or putting a pinprick in the the balloon of grief and sadness and tragedy to kind of deflate and calm the whole gruesome situation, whatever has occurred. So if you add a, a little bit of humour into there, it just puts everybody at ease and it brings them all back down to earth and you understand that it's life and death and that's all there is. Um, so well, not all there is obviously, but it, it's just life and death and in, it's part of life. And so there's practical things to be done. The sandwiches have to be made and the flowers have to be picked. I think as a nation, we're very good at that, reducing it to those really basic elements, as you say, life and death. I think so, especially because um, we're largely rural and everything depends on the elements. And so you've got to have a sense of humour. If a storm comes through and ruins you, well, what could, you can't, you, you don't want to stew about it too much. Well, you probably would, but you don't want to, you know, spend your life. You've got to pick up and move on. That seems to be a very Australian thing. Which is exactly what Tilly does in The Dressmaker's Secret. So, Rosalie, uh, thank you very much for joining me today on the Good Reading Magazine podcast. It's been a pleasure to talk to you, and it's a fabulous book. Thank you. Thank you. I've thoroughly enjoyed that discussion. That was very lovely. Thank you, Greg. I've been talking to Rosalie Ham about her new book, The Dressmaker's Secret. It's published by Picador and is available at goodreadingmagazine.com.au and all good bookstores. My name's Greg Dobbs, and thanks for listening. <laughs>